Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up next hour, we're going to be talking about car insurance here in California, how the price of it is going up and up and up. And that's if you can get it, because it's becoming increasingly difficult to get automotive insurance. We'll talk about the factors that are going on. And I want to hear from you next hour if you're someone who's seen your premium go up considerably for car insurance. And there's been no change in uh, your designation as a driver. You don't have any points on your record, that that sort of thing. You're not driving a, a more valuable or more, more stolen vehicle than in the past. I'd like to hear from you about uh, how big an increase that you've seen and whether you've had any challenge getting car insurance. That's coming up next hour. But I want to begin with yesterday's event that took place while we were on the air with Air Talk. Um, in the wake of it, about 75 people were arrested by California Highway Patrol officers for linking arms and blocking the southbound 110 freeway in downtown Los Angeles. The protest began shortly after 9 o'clock. The freeway was not completely reopened until 11.30, although several lanes were open uh, in the 10 o'clock hour after the arrests were made. The uh, protest was organized by a group uh, of uh, progressive Jewish uh, Angelinos called If Not Now. It describes itself as a movement of American Jews that supports the end of U.S. support for Israel's military operation in Gaza, and they're calling for an immediate ceasefire. I'd like to hear from you, if you were on the freeway yesterday when this took place, to hear your thoughts about it and whether you feel like the protest bore fruit in terms of, of attention for the cause of the protesters, whether you felt like it did more good than harm to the cause of the protesters. I'm also interested in hearing whether you felt like that uh, it justified or more than justified what drivers on the freeway who were delayed for up to a couple of hours for what they experienced. We're at 866-893-5722. I want to be clear, we're not going to debate the war. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about this act of protest and whether it's helpful to the cause of those who were conducting the protest or, or not. Um, just by way of disclosure, I have a family member who uh, just a few years ago was involved in a protest that shut down the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge and that uh, chained cars together and blocked 
afternoon rush hour traffic from being able to move. So I, I do have someone I'm blood related to who actually took an action like this, protesting the criminal justice system in the Bay Area. But I would like to hear from you whether you think that this is um, a, a positive political act or whether it it actually hurts the cause of those who are carrying it out. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Um, Bizen in downtown Los Angeles, or Bision, I'm sorry, good to have you with us. Please share with us uh, whether you think that this is a successful protest uh, in its aims. Well, you know, uh, thank you so much for all the work that you do. But, you know, at a time like this, in a crisis like this, any and every way that people on the side of freedom, justice, and equality can get heard. I mean, yes, it takes um, shutting down the freeway. It takes our brothers and sisters shutting down the Bay Bridge. It takes our brothers and sisters at different consulates in front of the White House to, to get the attention that we need from our president. We stand on the shoulders of giants that fought for freedom, justice, and equality, not only here in America, but around the world. We stand on the yeah. shoulders of Jewish brothers and sisters that, that fought oppression. Vision. Oh, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I just I want to make sure we're focused on the analysis of whether this was beneficial or not. But I, I appreciate um, I appreciate what you're saying. But so you don't think that this given, you know, there was there were some fights that broke out with motorists who got out of their cars. Um, I thought I saw in, in some of the helicopter footage someone pouring water on a protester, another uh, who got a protester and physically um, uh, put that person on top of a car. You you feel like that, that this actually aided the cause? Well, it's, it's, it's not necessarily about aiding the cause. We Aiding the cause in regards to getting attention, um, stopping the norm, the, the norm of freedom, the norm of justice and equality in Israel and Palestine right now is, is, is over. Thousands of children and women are being killed. So those of us that stand on the shoulders of John, we take over freeways to get the attention of the world, to get the attention of our okay. president. All right. Bijan, I have other callers, but I thank you very much for starting off our conversation. So you heard his, his argument that this does raise attention by doing something that's so outside of the norm that it actually raises awareness of the cause. I'm interested to hear if you agree with that or if you think that it's detrimental to the cause and, and how you factor in what this means to those who were on the freeway, some of whom it might have just been an inconvenience. They were a couple hours later to where they needed to go. For others, they may have missed court appearances. They may have not gotten medical appointment that they needed, and it took weeks to get. Um, there may be varying degrees to which this, well, almost certainly varying degrees to which this affected the lives of people on the freeway. Jim and Gardena, good to have you with us. Hey, Larry, how's it going? Good, good, thanks. Uh, so I, look. On the freeway, alongside uh, on the 110 with the protesters, 
Um, yeah, it made my life temporarily inconvenient, but we're talking about life and death. We're talking about folks in an open-air prison being killed by airstrikes. My convenience can take a back seat for a few hours to, uh, you know, raise awareness to what's going on on the other side of the world. Well, and, and uh, I understand what you're saying, because in your case, it was inconvenience. You're just delayed a bit. For some people, it may have been more than an inconvenience, because you're talking about thousands of people. So likely among those were people going to doctor's appointments, as I mentioned, going to make court appearances, you know, maybe getting an injunction against someone, they're in a difficult... You, know, you, The range of things that are represented by all the people in those cars is pretty wide, I would guess, and that there aren't a lot of people sure. at that hour out just pleasure... Oh, hold on just a moment, Jim, I'll come back to you. But there aren't a lot of people out just pleasure driving at 9 in the morning on the 110 freeway. So, what, Jim, what would you say to those people for whom this was a significant setback? Uh, at least they're still alive. You know, you can reschedule a doctor's appointment. You can work something out with the court. Come back from a from a bomb. All right. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Cindy in South Los Angeles says, I was on the 110 North going to work yesterday. I appreciate people's freedom to protest, and I agree with the cause. But I think the stopping traffic doesn't help gain the public's favor to the side of the protesters. That's Cindy in South Los Angeles. Sue in Newport Beach says, it's very concerning because it could cause a, a terrible situation with an emergency. What if someone had a heart attack? and the ambulance couldn't get through traffic. That's Sue in Newport Beach, 866-893-5722. And I want to reinforce, we're not debating the war in Gaza. We're not debating Israel's action. We're not debating Hamas. That's, that's not what we're doing. We're talking about this act of protest yesterday morning. Did it aid the cause? Does it make more people likely to think about what's happening in the Middle East and to take the side of the protesters that there should be an immediate ceasefire and that the U.S. should not financially support Israel's military operation in Gaza. Do you think that the protests served that cause? Do you think it harmed that cause or that it was neutral in its effect? 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Mike in Sherman Oaks, good to have you with us. Hey, Larry. Hi. You know, I, I, I think that uh, we are all such activists these days in Southern California that no matter what the issue uh, everybody's goal as an activist seems to be to disrupt everyone else. Disruption is the key. And I agree with uh, your previous callers that, that it does harm to whatever cause you're, you're um, you know, putting out there and standing up for when you, like you said, you know, mess up people's uh, lives or get them in trouble with their boss or miss that court appearance. All right. And I also don't think it changes people's minds, really. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, so you you don't think that this sort of puts something that may be out of sight and out of mind for people who don't follow the news. This doesn't perhaps bring this more to the fore in their attention, maybe get it getting them thinking about it, maybe more likely to uh, themselves attend a protest or call their member of Congress. You, you don't think it has that effect? Uh, you know, it, it, it might a little bit around the edges for people who are uninformed and, you know, don't don't follow the news and, you know, caught up on world events. It, it may have some impact, but I'll bet you if those same people 
were there in the traffic yesterday on the 110, uh, they would not be, you know, if you were if you were uh, neutral on this issue and just were delayed, I don't think it would sway you to sympathize with those people. Mike, I appreciate it very much. 866-893-5722. Peeney in the Fairfax District says, as an if-not-now activist, I apologize to anyone who was inconvenienced yesterday. And as Angelinos ourselves, we know what it's like to be struck in tra- stuck in traffic, and it's not a good feeling. Unfortunately, we are in an emergency situation. We have tried many different approaches to send our message to President Biden and our elected leaders. But the U.S. government has not used its full leverage to end this killing, and this is a matter of life and death for tens of thousands of people. We need our message to be heard as loudly and clearly as possible. That's Peeney in the Fairfax District. And my question is, does this make it more likely that President Biden uh, would would say, okay, uh, I'm not going to support more military aid to Israel, or I'm going to pressure Benjamin Netanyahu to, to do an immediate ceasefire. Does this make that more likely? Not perhaps from this event, but from the awareness and the things that come afterwards. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and your first name. And and for those that support closing the freeway because of the urgency of what's happening in Gaza, you know, we also have other life and death, very urgent issues that we're facing as a society. And we, we know everything from the climate to the abuse of children to um, what's happening in, in parts of Africa and, and other parts of the Middle East. There are many life and death issues that affect us around the world. And, and so my question is, is, you know, is this something that more groups should use for the causes that they, they see as being absolutely righteous and that they believe will save thousands of lives? This is not the only one. Obviously, this is happening right now, and and uh, it's right there at the lead of newscasts. It's in our face. What's happening in Gaza? But it isn't the only tragedy that's uh, that's happening in the world right now. And I'm wondering, do others rise to that level that you think? A freeway shutdown and protest is the right tack to take. Uh, Bell in Westchester says, I'm all for protests, but why wouldn't they shut down the federal building in West L.A. to get the president's attention? Um, Cole in Monterey Park, good to have you with us. Cole, what do you think of, of yesterday's protest and what the effects of it will be? Thank you, Larry. Um, I really think that the protest does both things that um, you're talking about right now in that it gets the message out broadly, but it also undercuts the message itself because um, this act is not an act of nonviolence. We're talking about the potential to bring death to people here through the act, and these protesters have accepted that and marginalized those people to do what they want and see as a just cause. Um, well, and it's interesting, Cole, because one of the things, and we heard that in Peeney's comment, is describing it as inconvenience, which perhaps for the majority of drivers is the case. But 
I understand from a moral standpoint, you, you have to be focused on we're inconveniencing people, not that there could be serious negative, that p- someone could lose a job, that someone could have a serious negative health outcome, that there wouldn't be an emergency, and that the workaround to get there could be life threat. You have to kind of block that out of your mind. Well, I, I mean, to, to believe in that line of logic, I, I agree with you. And, and I also think that it's, it's quite a bit of a false equivalency to talk about protesters standing on the shoulders of giants when those giants stood on the ground of nonviolence. So you can't co-opt these people, these legends, icons of equal rights by doing violent acts yourself. And I really believe hypocrisy is a silent killer here. And the people that, that don't listen to the message or are turned off to the message are really hearing these things that we're talking about right now. And, and it's not that they're neutral, it's that you can see through the veil of this hypocrisy. Cole, thank you. I appreciate your call. 866-893-5722. We're going to take a break. We'll continue with more listener calls and emails. We're getting many different emails at atcomments at las.com. And I just want to stress again, we're not debating the war. We're not debating Israel's military action. We're talking specifically about yesterday's protest by the Jewish progressive group, If Not Now, which shut down the southbound 110 freeway downtown uh, in part for about, I guess, an hour and a half or so, uh, and uh, the freeway fully reopened in about two and a half hours. So I'm interested in hearing from people who were on the freeway at the time, either in the backup or taking part in the protest. We've heard from Pini, who's a member of the group, if not now. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about whether the protest is beneficial to the cause espoused, whether it does harm to it, how and and how you look at what the effect is on those uh, who also were brought into the protest because they were people on the freeway at the time. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA, a 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. First of all, I want to 
I want to thank all the listeners who are calling in and sending emails that are so thoughtful on this topic and really understanding what the point of our conversation is today. I mean, I just have to be straight. I don't think there are very many audiences in radio that could have this kind of conversation, given how how high emotions are around what's happening in Gaza, to be able to talk about this specific issue of the protest yesterday, whether it benefited the causes uh, of the protesters or not. Um, but I really appreciate it. So many, so many interesting points that are being raised, including Dennis, who emails us, you in this segment are an answer to your question. The protest generated this public debate on your show. What a boon for the awareness of the protest. That's Dennis emailing us at atcomments at las.com. I think, though, that, you know, for AirTalk listeners, everybody's quite aware of what's happening in Gaza. It's pretty front of mind for our listeners because they're very, by definition, tuned in to what's happening in the world. Um, I have to think for, um, if not now, for the protesters, they're really trying to raise the visibility of this for people who maybe aren't tuned in to to make this a priority of concern for them. Tim and Locke Crescenta says the demonstration on the freeway was a sign of a much bigger problem, the radicalization of our society. Whatever a person believes is intensified by protests. Civility goes out the window. That's Tim in Locke Crescenta. Mike in Paramount says, what if this act caused a pileup on the freeway, caused an accident? Would protesters be liable for people's safety? I, I, I don't know that there would be any legal liability. Um, perhaps that factors in, into the moral equation. I don't, I don't know. I mean, these are, all, these are all issues that people, whether in the protest or listening to our program, we all grapple with the moral dimensions of this. 866-893-5722. Uh, let's talk with uh, Mike in Anaheim. Good to have you with us. Mike, Does did this protest, do you think, benefit the cause absolutely larry and and with all due respect to the listeners of your show and i, I do appreciate the, the the wide range of topics that you discuss but i don't really hear too much about the palestinian suffering that's going on daily and that doesn't erase what happened on october 7th right like that's not the debate but the point is is with these kinds of with these kinds of actions just like what happened with blf right the black lives matter movement when they were shutting down uh you know transit around the country after George Floyd was murdered. It draws attention to what's happening, but it also highlights the fact that we don't need to go to the federal buildings or whatever to go get President Biden's, you know, attention. It's the fact that our tax dollars are funding this right now. I mean, we, we shell out almost $4 billion a year to fund Israel's defense, or the military, really. Um, so, you know, this, this, this highlights the fact that it's on all of us. I mean, this is a moral issue for all of us. And, yeah, I understand that people may be inconvenienced, you know, from going to their jobs or whatever else. But, I mean, people are dying every day. Yeah, and I really think, I think, Mike, it's important. I hear what you're saying. As I said before, for the majority of people on the freeway, it may have just been an inconvenience. I do think that you morally you do need to grapple with the fact that this could have had significantly negative financial health 
other consequences for people beyond inconvenience. Now, I, you can still come to the moral conclusion that that the benefit of the protest because of the stakes in Gaza are so high that for those who do suffer on the freeway with something more than inconvenience, that that's morally justified. You can make that argument, but I do think you need to grapple with that at some level and not just sort of, you know— pretend that it's all inconvenience. Mike, I appreciate your point. Thank you very much. Uh, I do want to say also, Mike, that at the top of the hour on NPR's Hourly News, it laid out exactly what is happening and talked about the U.N. report about Gaza being the most uh, dangerous place for children anywhere in the world and describing the horrible injuries that children are suffering in Gaza. That led this hour on NPR News. So I, I, I don't think that that's, that's being ignored on NPR or LAist 89.3. Um, let's see. Let's uh, talk with George in the Hollywood Hills. Good to have you with us. George, do you think that the protest yesterday was effective? Well, I think it undercut the message to some degree because the protesters believe that the uh, that the you know the moral prerogative of, of their of their point trumps everything that everybody else on that freeway had to do that day. Now there might be I know it's a big issue, and um, and but you know there are people like you were just saying there are people who could have been impacted, you know, financially. Is it fair for somebody to miss a day of work for that? You know, you don't know what that impacts on them, you know. Uh, and, you know, and I know that you didn't want this to be a, uh, a political statement. Yeah. The last caller certainly did. And I will say one thing, if not now, um, believes and part of their charter is that, that there is no two-state solution. So they want the elimination of Israel. They do not want Israel to exist as a Jewish state. So that also is okay. something that people should know. Yeah. George, I appreciate the call very much. Uh, thank you. We're at 866-893-5722. And, and I, I don't know uh, specifically if, if that is is the view. Uh, I know it's a progressive Jewish organization, and, and I don't know if they believe in the existence of Israel as a Jewish state or, or, or not. But Christine in Pasadena emailed us, I do think the protest furthered the cause, though I'm very disturbed by the thought of medical emergencies on the 110 during the protest. The protest caused so many people to think about the question of what it's worth to stop the killing of civilians in Gaza. That means the protest worked. I listen to NPR every day. I've heard the people in Gaza's stories firsthand with details. But I know people who won't listen to or read the news because it's upsetting. The protest makes them and all of us think. At the time of the Vietnam War, there were similar protests on a bridge in San Francisco, for instance, and I do think it affected the president. That's Christine in Pasadena. Uh, Sarah in South Los Angeles emailed, I think the protest is less about impacting the people delayed in traffic and more about changing the narrative for elected officials. It's hard to pretend the American people support its government's action in support of the Israeli military when there are high-profile demonstrations like this. Well, again, demonstrations don't necessarily tell you about the totality of the electorate. Typically, demonstrations are conducted by people who hold a view that is is um, 
for lack of a better term, more extreme. They're the ones who are the most motivated to get out, who feel the most strongly about it. So it's not necessarily representative of where the totality of, of Americans are, are at. Um, Francesca emails, I think blocking traffic is terribly irresponsible. The protesters' concern is not everyone's concern. It takes months to get a court date in L.A. County. It can take months to get an important doctor's appointment. And people can run out of gas while they're sitting on the freeway waiting to get through. Closing a freeway and affecting thousands uh, of people makes people angry, and rightfully so. It doesn't create sympathy for the cause that's being advocated when people are prevented from doing what they need to do in their daily lives. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location uh, and first name. Uh, let's see. Let's talk with Adam in Montecito Heights. I understand you are a volunteer organi- organizer with If Not Now. Uh, Adam, share with us what it was like for you to be out there at the protest yesterday. Hey, Larry. Thank you so much for, for having me on the air. Um, yeah, my name is Adam Hirsch. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong member of the Jewish community here in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm the descendant of Holocaust refugees, and I'm also a volunteer organizer with If Not Now, like you said. Um, uh, before I talk about the protest specifically, I just wanted to make a very quick correction um, to what your caller, George, said about If Not Now and its relationship to the two-state solution. You said that, that we're against the two-state solution and that we want the destruction of Israel. I just want to say that that's categorically incorrect. Uh, if, if not now, wants uh, freedom and dignity and safety and security for every person living in Israel and Palestine. Uh, and um, we have family members in Israel. Many of us have family members in Israel. Um, and like you said, we're progressive Jewish activists uh, that, that want to see safety and security right. and, and freedom and dignity. Thank you. Thank that. you for clarifying that. And, and, uh, but Adam, what, what, cause I saw, you know, just the footage many of us saw from the helicopters overhead for the TV channels. And it looked like at least some of the protesters were, were roughed up a bit, uh, by people who got out of their cars and were not happy the protest was taking place. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. So this was a nonviolent civil disobedience act of, of mass disruption that is inspired, you know, by, by a long tradition of, of nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, you know, many of which we've seen over the past two months as a response to, to the horrific war uh, that, that Israel is committing against the Palestinian people. And um, yeah, we, we, we essentially were engaging in, in nonviolent protests sitting across the highway. Um, we were singing songs. We were singing prayers. We, we you know, we lit a, a, a large menorah um, to celebrate the, the seventh day of Hanukkah. Um, and, you know, there were several um, there were several motorists that were on the scene that were stuck behind us. There were some, several moments in which they expressed their frustration and their anger in ways where they tried to physically engage with us, engage in physical altercations. We had a trained team of safety marshals whose job it was to keep the situation completely de-escalated and nonviolent, and they were very much successful in that regard. Um, I know that news cameras captured like one or two isolated instances of things, you know, starting to escalate a bit, but by and large, our protesters were kept very safe. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, the protesters... So there were no injuries. That, that's, completely that's... nonviolent. 
That's it good was. to hear. I, di I did want to ask you, though, Adam, is, is, do you feel like this was successful in, in what, what the organization was attempting to do? And are you contemplating doing other freeway closures? Yeah. So I, I really want to lift up what your, your listener, um, Christina from Pasadena, said, um, which is that by engaging in this act of mass disruption and really inserting our bodies uh, and our message into the public consciousness in this way, um, we're really like amplifying our message to the entire community of Los Angeles and to the whole country and to the whole world. Okay. You know, like so you see it. Yeah, Adam, I'm so sorry. I got so many callers. I'm just trying to hurry you along a little bit. So I appreciate you. You, you feel it was successful. Are you looking to close other freeways? I can't speak to any specific other action plans that we have now. I will say that part of our goal is to inspire people all across the country and all over the world to take any form of nonviolent action that they can to put pressure on the U.S. government okay. to stop funding war crimes. In Adam, I, I appreciate I'm so sorry. Again, I didn't want to get into debating um, Israel's military action in Gaza, but I appreciate you talking about uh, the fact your group believes it was successful. No one was injured in those confrontations with drivers. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Richard in Encino says, as a PR person and political activist, I think it was ineffective and unnecessary. There's no lack of coverage of what's going on. This was a waste of time. Every government in the world is aware of this issue. That's Richard in Encino. Jasmine in Culver City says, I commend them for their bravery and cause, but I think we need to be more careful with our protest targets. These were people going to work, bringing kids to school. It doesn't help the cause if people are just thinking about how we inconvenience them. Uh, John in San Pedro says, I don't think it was that effective in rallying people to a different point of view. Uh, Mike in Santa Monica says, I think Americans protest all things that are un unjust. That's or unjust. That's a fundamental part of being um, an American. Uh, Erica in Pasadena, I think the protest was a little effective in that it amplified the voices of Jewish people who are not aligned with Israeli policy. Um, Shana in uh, Beverly Hills says, I think it makes you realize to what extent people will go for peace. It made me realize that. Uh, kudos to those who will stand up for this. Uh, let me read some more listener comments that have come in. Um, Sahar in Irvine, I don't like to get stuck in traffic. However, when people do a protest like this, they do it to enlighten others about the cause and to um, uh, teach people about the issue. Angela in South Los Angeles, I was on the 110 yesterday with a lot of high school students. It was an effective protest in that the performance I was taking the kids to was delayed. The students were told why, even in terms of making students aware that there are other issues, it was effective. Jeff in West Los Angeles said the protest reflects a dilemma which protests often have. Unless they do something somewhat extreme, they don't get attention. There's no news made. The trade-off is you get your message out, but you get blowback. 
Uh, Philip, in downtown Los Angeles, I don't think it's effective. People stuck there for hours don't care about the cause. They care about getting kids to school or medical help. This is not just an inconvenience. It is a medical and safety issue. And Romeo in Westminster said, I think they should not be blocking traffic. It could make people late for critical appointments. If they want to protest, they should do it where they're not hurting other people and not creating a danger. Thank you so much. I don't have time to read all the other comments because there are dozens more of them. Thank you again for the high level of conversation about this. I know this is such a fraught issue where so many lives are on the line, so many deeply held views are are being challenged and, and are difficult to talk about right now. But I have to say how I impressed I am with AirTalk listeners on taking this on and really dealing with the issue of the protest yesterday, whether you think it was effective or not. It's AirTalk on LS 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about the National uh, Film Registry from the Library of Congress and some of the new additions. It's AirTalk on LS 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. You know who wrote this song? The great Peggy Lee, who did Songs for Lady and the Tramp, which is one of the films added to the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. 25 movies every year are chosen. So you've got extraordinary gems, and then plenty that we can debate whether they deserve to be on the list of protected national treasures of film. Uh, we're going to talk with our critic Amy Nicholson about the choices this year, but first let me read them off. They include uh, Chris Columbus's movie Home Alone, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, the 1933 George Cukor classic Dinner at Eight, that was his seventh film that he made, Susan Seidelman's Desperately Seeking Susan, starring Madonna, John Sayles' Medawan, James Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Ang Lee's The Wedding Banquet, a film up from 1993 that I love, Ron Howard's Apollo 13 from 95, Gina Prince Bythewood's Love and Basketball, Spike Lee's Bamboozled, Mentioned Lady and the Tramp, Cruisin' J-Town, 
passing through fame, 20 Feet from Stardom, the wonderful documentary about uh, backup singers and the tremendous contributions they've made to American music. Um, it's the, the years of the films that are chosen go from 1921, which is a Kodak educational film, a movie trip through Filmland, right up to 2013, uh, Steve McQueen's film, 12 Years a Slave and 20 Feet from Stardom. Uh, Amy, your thoughts, first of all, about these selections. I mean, there's a lot to debate here, as always. Oh, as always. But how fun as we're building up to Christmas and everybody's putting Home Alone and Nightmare Before Christmas in their DVD players to be like, yes, you're not just enjoying your holiday tradition. You are now participating in what the Library of Congress deems important cinema. And these are films that, as I understand it, are are going to be protected. They're going to be preserved. So it's not just you put them on the list, but they're made a national priority so that they can be seen in perpetuity. Yes, which is such a wonderful thing, because as people who love cinema, we know that there are so many important films from the beginning of film history that got lost, that we'll never get to see, which is why I was excited to see them put on something like a movie trip through Filmland, you know, this 102-year-old documentary. Do you know what it's about? I do, I do. I mean, it's basically you go to the Kodak um, Park, you know, which is in Rochester, New York, and it's just a factory tour of how they used to make nitrocellulose film stock, which involves things I didn't even know, like men with giant vats of cotton, washing cotton, melting down silvers and salt. You know, it really, you really understand the industrial process of what it took to even make film in the early days of cinema. I definitely understood, I understand now why um, film is so flammable. I don't think I ever yeah, quite nit- got Well, why. nitrate film, that's why we don't have a lot of the movies you were talking about. Exactly. A lot of them were lost in fires. A lot of them disintegrated. And so by preserving something like this documentary, you can really feel that the Library of Congress this year thought, we are not just documenting movies people love, we're documenting history. You know, film stock itself is such a rarity, even with the updated stock, that preserving this movie, I feel like, has a lot of extra resonance this year. And it, it's great to see. It's always a mix of documentaries. 20 Feet from Stardom is one of my favorites. I I love that film because it so beautifully combines some great performances. You really, you get to hear the incredible voices of these singers, but also the stories of how challenging a life it is being an itinerant singer. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that really popped out to me about this list as well, is like, this is very much a list about preserving different stories. You know, there's a whole string of films comes from the 50s to the 70s up in here that are, in essence, documentaries about different parts of life. And it feels like they've put those on the list to really say, like, we want to make sure we don't even forget how Americans used to live in this century. One of the smaller things on here that really just sort of made me stop in my tracks, there's um, an entry here from the Bohulano Family Film Collection. They're a, uh, they're a Filipino family that lived in in the south area of Stockton. This is just their home movies from 20 really? years. Yeah, weddings, marriages, you know, teens running around, dance rehearsals. In, you know, just a working class post-war Filipino family. It's an incredible record of a community that has, you know, is struggling to sort of like recognize where they were in history. You get to see every little corner of America. On this so list. these aren't all just theatrically released films. Yeah, this is a woman's home movie. She had them on YouTube and she's been sort of saying, watch these, watch these. You're seeing a record of this entire community. There's also a documentary, We're Alive, from 1974. It's six months 
months of roundtable conversations at the California Institution for Women uh, that drew attention to the inhumane prison conditions there. Three UCLA graduate students led these conversations. Yeah, with these inmates who were in Chino. You know, and they really tried to make like a film record that involved their input as well. So it wasn't just like UCLA students coming in and being like, look at this prison, but listening to the women, hearing their stories. This is a film that was actually considered lost for a while. And then somebody oh. read a little note about it and said, what was this? What's We're Alive? And went and tracked it down. Wow. And I guess that raises the point that, you know, for these films, they're nominated and those nominations come from all over the place. Yeah, they really do. You can feel that the people who put together this list, like, really took it seriously, really questioned what the point of this list is. Is it just celebrating the big Hollywood movies that we love, which is important. I'm glad you called out Dinner at Eight. That's such a funny George Cukor film. Yes. Gene Harlow, Marie Dressler, oh, written by Great Francis cast. Marion, yeah. two-time Oscar winner in 1933, already a two-time Oscar winner. Amazing. But it is also, there. some of the films here, I feel like, give you such an insight into Los Angeles, into the city that we really were back in the 70s. Well, yeah, and what are some of those that are L.A.-centric in the choices? Oh, one of the ones that's so fantastic, it's a documentary called Cruising J-Town. Uh, it's by another UCLA student, Diane C uh, Dwayne Kubo, and he did this documentary about a jazz band that was playing here in downtown Los Angeles uh, called Hiroshima. Oh, yeah, Hir I'm a fan of Hiroshima. They're great. Oh, it's so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, Dan Kuramoto and leads the group. Yeah, yeah, he's also a, um, a professor of music who's taught at universities as well as leading Hiroshima. Oh, that's so marvelous. Yeah. And, like, and to have this record of them. Yeah, going I have back to see it because I'm a fan of their music. Yeah. yeah. And here's them young figuring out, like, what do they want their art to even say? How does their art participate in, yeah. in the world? Well, it's great because they, they brought uh, the koto and, and Japanese traditional instruments uh, into the the jazz that they played as well and, and got radio airplay and sold records as, as well. Uh, I, I also, I was glad to see, and I haven't seen it in years, but uh, the film from director Robert M. Young, Alambrista, from 1977, which really gives a sense of, of the experiences of migrant laborers, um, young known for many of his films that really give you a sense from uh, a Mexican-American perspective of life in the United States. It really does. I mean, this is a film that won Best First Feature at Cannes when it came out in 1977, but it never played theaters nationally. You know, it's only kind of done the college circuit. And, I mean, it's it, to me that also has, like, so many lovely local connections here. KCET helped fund this movie back in the 1970s. We'll continue with Amy Nicholson, our Film Week critic, who also writes on film for the New York Times. We welcome uh, any calls you want to make and share as well your thoughts about any of the movies chosen this year. Or if you're aware of a film you think should be on the list, which is quite vast now, but isn't there, and you know for a fact it's not on the list, give us a call. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866 893 5722. As we listen to music from, uh, uh, this must be from, uh, the oh, this is Nightmare. Nightmare this Before, is Nightmare yeah, Before Christmas. Okay, yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas. All right, we'll be back with more in just a moment. Christmas 
just like the ones I used to know. That's The Drifters, a part of the soundtrack for Home Alone, one of the 25 films chosen for preservation and recognition, the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. Thomas in Winnetka, Illinois, emailed, uh, Home Alone was shot here. I can attest to the continued popularity of the film. People still flock to the Home Alone house to take selfies year-round, but especially in the weeks leading up to Christmas. That's Thomas in Winnetka, Illinois. Thank you so much. Uh, Again, if you want to tout a film that you know for a fact is not on the National Film Registry that you think deserves to be there, give us a call at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Amy, it's hard for me to believe that 12 Years a Slave came out more than a decade ago, because the film has to be at least 10 years old for consideration. Oh, I didn't realize that yeah. a 10-year cutoff. That's fascinating. Yeah, and so 12 Years a Slave and 20 Feet from Stardom, both 2013. So uh, that's why you don't have any newer movies on there. I mean, that is good. I think a 10-year waiting period is, is should be at least the minimum to kind of sit there, think about it, really understand. I mean, there's so many Oscar movies that come out and win a bunch of things that we never talk about them no, again. No, so true. Uh, by the way, Turner Classic Movies, TCM, is going to screen a selection of the films named to this year's registry starting tonight at 5 o'clock Pacific time. Uh, TCM host Jacqueline Stewart, who also heads the um, uh, museum uh, that the Academy runs, and librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden, uh, will be uh, providing commentary. They'll be talking about the films that were shown, and then a number of them will be shown on TCM in uh, the days to come. So let, let's talk a bit about um, what makes a film worthy of making the list or preservation. What, what for you should be the criteria, Amy? Well, I mean, I think about this a lot because, you know, I do a podcast on Spooled where we talk so much about what films deserve to go into the canon. Is that the AFI list that you use as the basis for Unspooled? Yeah, that's exactly it. We started with the AFI list and then we cut 40 films off the list. Now we've been trying to figure out what else we want to put on it. And it's that Venn diagram that I think we wrestle with all the time. You know, do you want to go by here's a major director? We have to have them on this list. Or is it by, here's a film that was just such a massive hit, it had such an impact, something like Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which to me was really a landmark film in special effects. Absolute landmark. And honestly, I don't think it was even topped in special effects for 10 years after And one of those films better than the original movie. The sequel was superior. (laughs) I mean, that's fighting words. You might have some some Terminators coming after you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. But Uh, yeah, I mean, so many different things make a movie important, valuable. Is it the story that it's telling? Is it the community that it's saying? Is it an actor who we just love and this was the one good film they did that really showcased everything they were capable of? I mean, it's kind of an impossible debate, which is why I love having this debate. Well, let's take Home Alone and 12 Years a Slave. So Home Alone has been seen by millions of people. I mean, very few Americans have not seen Home Alone. 12 Years a Slave was not big at the box office when it was released. I I would doubt that on streaming it's one of the heavily watched films. It's a very important film. And Steve McQueen is an acclaimed director, and and this was a movie that was groundbreaking. So you've got kind of, you know, the, the two polarities there in those two choices. You're exactly right. One is the film that we do watch all the time and celebrate, and the other one is the one that we want to make sure we don't forget about, that we do remember to watch it. It's, it's a nudge. 
I have to admit, I'm one of the handful of Americans who's never seen Home Alone. Oh, I have never, Larry. Can you believe that? I have never seen the film. I've seen 12 Years a Slave. I've never seen Home Alone. Larry, you need to change this. <laughs> I know we're going to be here next week talking about the Christmas releases. I hope you've changed this by then. Okay, I, 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 I will try. And re- <laughs> after, after the Oscar consideration season, I will rectify <laughs> my error. Uh, uh, we're talking with Amy Nicholson, our Film Week critic and uh, writer on film for the New York Times. Also, she mentioned hosting Unspooled, the podcast series. Uh, so uh, who are the people that make the, the selection for this? Do you know, is the Library of Congress chooses a... A group of scholars, or you know, I believe so. I I know I have um, like a colleague of mine who's been oh. a person who's chosen in the past and has like talked to me a little bit about just the effort, the work, the watchability, the arguments, the conversations. I'd feel I'd feel the the burden of that because this isn't just like choosing a, a critics organization list, as important as that is, and I know how hard fought that can be among the membership. Oh yes, this <laughs> this is something that forever, as long as there's a United States, is going to be in the Library of Congress as a choice. Yeah, and isn't that just special? And oh my goodness, we had our LAFCA vote this year for this year's awards, and it was seven and a half hours. You've got to be kidding. Yeah, so how much is this, picking 25 to document history? So if anyone questions how seriously critics with the L.A. Film Critics Association take movies, <laughs> that seven and a half hour vote tells you either that or they're not well organized. But I know that's not the case. They can't see, they can't see 10 films in a week and review them all without being very organized. Thank you so much, Amy. Great to talk with you again. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. Much more to come in the second hour. I'll tell you about it in a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the challenge in paying for and getting car insurance. That's getting tougher. We've, of course, talked on the program about the challenge with homeowners insurance, but car insurance is getting tough, too. We'll talk about that. And our TV critics will be here later this hour to remember homicide life on the streets. Andre Brower, who passed away 
earlier this week. Reminder, tomorrow on Film Week, our critics review Wonka, the musical starring Timothy Chalamet. Also, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, from director and co-screenwriter Zack Snyder. We'll hear about American Fiction, a a film which comes with significant Oscar aspirations. Jeffrey Wright stars Cord Jefferson, the writer-director, and The Zone of Interest, a film uh, that was made in Poland, which depicts the life of the commandant of Auschwitz uh, during... Uh, the uh, early 1940s, uh, he and his wife's domestic life alongside the work that he is doing at uh, the death camp Auschwitz. That's uh, tomorrow on Film Week here on LAS 89.3. And before we get to the topic, I do want to take a moment to recognize the truly outstanding production team on this program. They just bring it every day with their very best. They are so smart. They are so attuned to what they think is going to make the strongest program for you as a listener. And I sing their praises all over, and I need to do it more on air. We're led by Matt Wright. Uh, I'm sorry, Matt D'Angelo-Antonio, our senior producer. Lindsay Wright, our producer. Lucy Kopp, producer. Manny Valladares, producer. And Michael Goldsmith. Peyton Seda has helped us with production this week. And our apprentice news clerks are Tamar Fagan and Jason Rodriguez. Our technical director, who engineers the program so flawlessly, is Evelyn Bo. My thanks to all this tremendous team for what they do. All right, we're joining us uh, to talk about the difficulty in finding car insurance. Uh, is a reporter who's just written about this for Cal Matters. She's economy reporter for the publication. Uh, Levy Sumagaisai joining us. Thank you, Levy, for being with us. So, share with us in your reporting what you found about the challenge with car insurance now. Hello, I'm glad to join you. Thanks for having me. Um, So what I found is that some folks are having a hard time finding car insurance for the first time. Some have been non-renewed. Some folks are finding uh, that even though they've been with an insurer for a while, if they happen to... um, you know, delay a payment or something like that, uh, that they have to start over. Um, There are just things that they're finding uh, difficulty uh, that they haven't had before. Yeah, I I have to say, um, you know, I've been with the same car insurer for many years now, Um, have other insurance beyond car insurance. We have good driver's rates, no points, no... And and the increase in premiums has been substantial. And uh, is this happening pretty much across the board for for Californians, Levy? Um, I I think that that's what I've seen. Uh, There are are folks who are still finding affordable car insurance, but... um, Many insurers have requested rate increases and uh, the Department of Insurance is starting to approve them. And so that's why Californians are seeing their rates increase. You talked with a broker who had a customer who lost insurance. How, how, how late was the customer in paying the premium? 
So I talked to it, you know, after my story published, um, I got a lot of feedback, uh, received many emails about different scenarios. And, you know, I, I talked with a broker yesterday who said he found it so disturbing that um, a longtime customer of an insurer um, happened to pay his premium two or three days late, uh, told the broker he had done something like that before, you know, that it was an oversight and that it had always been fine. Um, but this time around, what happened was the insurer told him he had to start over. And not only that, he had to wait 30 days. And oh, so, no. you know, this is someone, yeah, this is someone who had had insurance before, um, made a made a mistake and, uh, you know, paid dearly for it. And what do we understand about why insurers are changing their practices? So from what I've seen in my reporting, um, insurers are, are, are tightening their underwriting practices. Uh, they are citing increased costs uh, for payouts. Like if someone gets into an accident, um, they say that, you know, the cost to insurers is just much higher than before because everything is more expensive, right? They're, they're pointing to inflation, they're pointing to increased labor costs, et cetera. And so, um, you know, that is what insurers are saying uh, is causing them to want to increase rates. We're talking with reporter from Cal Matters who covers the economy, Levy Sumagaisai, about the reporting she's done on car insurance being tougher to obtain, cancellations happening more quickly than in the past, and rising premiums. Also with us is Harvey Rosenfield, the founder of the group Consumer Watchdog, the author of Proposition 13, which established the state insurance commissioner to oversee the setting of rates in California. Harvey, good to have you with us again. So from your perspective, what's going on? Larry, thanks for having me back. Um, I got to say that we should look at this, uh, what's happening in California now to motorists in the context of what's happening to homeowners. Um, I think what, we, what we're seeing is a boycott of the California marketplace by insurance companies. And the purpose of the boycott is to get the insurance commissioner to approve far higher insurance premiums and reduce the regulation, the consumer protections that the voters passed 35 years ago when they enacted Proposition 103. That's that's the goal of the industry. And, it, you know, as you know, Larry, you've covered this. Uh, there's been a crisis in the homeowners markets where people can't get insurance and they're canceled or non-renewed for a number of months now. And there the insurance industry was blaming uh, Proposition 103's uh, protections, claiming they couldn't get high enough rates. But um, that was all couched in wildfire, in climate change. Obviously, climate change and wildfire has nothing to do with auto insurance premiums. And the commissioner has already approved a billion dollars worth of auto insurance rate increases over the last, I want to say, 11 months. So the problem, as we see it at Consumer Watchdog, is having, having spent the last 35 years uh, working to uh, defend Proposition 103 against the insurance industry, I think they, the insurance companies 
uh, have found a in the current insurance commissioner, whose name is Ricardo Lara, someone who's willing to, to go to bat for them. And uh, the problem is he's not enforcing the rules that the voters passed, which would protect consumers against a, a lot of the practices that Levy points out in her article. These things, some of what, what the auto insurance companies are doing is illegal under Proposition 103. But Harvey, the commissioner... Go ahead. Oh, I was please. just going to say, um, you mentioned that when it comes to wildfires or hurricanes and tornadoes, things that we have seen in much greater numbers and with losses much uh, greater in the past few years, that that wouldn't affect uh, auto premiums. But don't most of the companies that sell in California sell to the Gulf states, sell to Florida, sell to places where thousands of cars have been lost to flooding and to hurricanes, sell to places in the West that have seen wildfires destroy ma many cars? Why wouldn't that have an effect on car premiums? Great question. And the answer is that under Proposition 103, it's very carefully regulated. They cannot include losses in other states. They've got to look at what's happening in California, what's happening to accidents and, and the cost of repairing cars that they're allowed to look at. And they're allowed to make a fair profit. They cannot look at what's happening in other states. I'd love to hear from listeners if you've seen a significant change in the cost of your auto insurance or if you found it difficult to get car insurance, I'd like to hear from you uh, about that experience. How much of an increase? What have you been looking at? What have you experienced? Please tell us succinctly. We don't have a lot of time, but I really value your input to give us examples of what you're dealing with. Now, if you have uh, points from from moving violations, you've been in an accident where you've been found at least partially at fault, you're driving a more valuable vehicle or a higher likelihood of theft vehicle, that's different. You know, you expect to see some changes in your premiums. But if all else is the same and you're seeing a significant increase in your premiums or a difficulty in getting coverage, I'd like to hear you describe what that experience is. We're at 866 722-866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location as well as your first name. Also with us, from Cal State Northridge, Professor of Insurance and Finance and Director of CSUN's Center for Risk Management and Insurance, David Russell. David, thank you for being with us again. It's great to be back, Larry. Uh, so from, from your perspective, what's going on with these changes in the auto insurance market? Well, under Prop 103, as Harvey mentioned, um, there is a process for enacting rate increases that exceed 7%. And what happened during the pandemic, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, people stopped driving to the same degree. And so insurance companies enjoyed favorable claims experience in the year 2000, uh, sorry, 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, the commissioner ultimately compelled uh, insurance companies to refund a portion of their um, favorable claims experience from that episode. And many of the insurance companies objected to that. They, they had to comply, but they objected to that. And as people started driving again, 
um, they wanted to raise rates, and the commissioner did not allow them to raise rates in 2021 and 2022. So we're playing a bit of catch-up from uh, body shop inflation, medical cost inflation, um, jury awards that some people call social inflation. Um, the, the rates that we're seeing, the significant rate increases, are really um, somewhat of a catch-up from that those uh, rate suspensions and, and rate freezes that happened in 2021 and 2022. And because insurance companies are not able to collect the premiums to cover their costs, as Harvey in, indicated, there's somewhat of a, a, of a seller's strike. They're, they're making it hard to get. They're losing money. They're not advertising as much. And uh, just looking at recent results from the insurance companies, um, things are starting to get better, but they're still not doing very well in California. And th their opinion is, if I'm not going to make money in California, if I'm going to lose money, I'm not very enthusiastic about selling more auto insurance. So that's okay. somewhat of both the rate, um, the, the, the rate increases that we've seen, as well as the difficulty in availability. Because the sense I was getting from, from what Harvey said, and when we go back to him, he can object if I'm mischaracterizing it, but what I was hearing Harvey say is essentially the companies are boycotting they're trying to make a statement to the insurance commissioner that they're unhappy that they can't raise uh, their premiums more than than they've been allowed to do so. Not that they're not making money under the current rates that they're allowed to charge, but they just think they should be making more money, and so they're essentially, you know, taking their toy and, and going home. Is that a, do you think that that is what's going on, Professor? Well, I can't speak for the companies. I can see that uh, companies certainly want to change the regulatory regime in California. At Prop 103, uh, through the intervener process, compels the commissioner and uh, companies to go through a rel relatively lengthy rate increase process if the rate uh, request exceeds a 7% increase. So, Companies are, are you know, sore about that, and they have been losing money, and they continue to in many lines. Um, but they're, uh, they're really wanting to raise rates and get back in the game, and the process um, doesn't allow that to have an immediate effect, especially as the rates earn in. If I raise a rate, I don't get to charge it um, you know, for the past 12 months. I have to charge it collected over the next 12 months and I've already lost money on the on the on the previous policy. But I think you know Californians are understandably shocked by these rate increases. Uh, auto insurance is somewhat of a necessity in Southern California because uh, we are a driving culture. Uh, insurance is required both by law as well as by good financial practice. So we almost look look at auto insurance as food, and well, we feel like these rate increases really have uh, a shock value that yeah. that we're not accustomed to. Well, I was going to say, in California, we even have like the California Fair Plan for people who can't get homeowners insurance because they're in a very high fire area where where 
companies won't sell to them. Similarly, with car insurance, we have assigned risk where because we recognize people have to have insurance. I mean, we we don't want people driving around uninsured, so so we have um, state mandated assigned risk to make sure that people are covered, even if uh, they're people who wouldn't otherwise be able to obtain insurance. We'll continue our conversation with David Russell, professor of insurance and finance at Cal State Northridge, Harvey Rosenfield, the founder of Consumer Watchdog and author of Proposition 103, and Levi Sumagaisai, a reporter on economics for Cal Matters, whose piece brought this to our attention and led us to do this segment on AirTalk. We have a couple listeners who are going to weigh in on what they're seeing in the way of changes to their car insurance. We're at 866-893-5722. Back in just one minute. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. TV Talk comes up shortly. Our critics are going to be talking with us about the best of streaming and network television. That's just minutes away. But right now, we're talking about the challenge in affording, or in some cases, even getting car insurance, as insurers have been making their practices much more difficult on uh, insureds. We're talking with listeners about what's involved. Thomas in Marina Del Rey, good to have you with us. Please share with us your experience. Yes, thank you for taking my call, Larry. Um, I really appreciate this topic. Uh, this is a two-part question. Number one, I was with my company for three decades, the car insurance company. After the pandemic, I ended up homeless living in my vehicle. It's been very difficult. When they found this out, they tried to drop me. Um, uh, but before that, they found out I was doing rideshare and tried to increase my, my rate from 180 a month to 450 a month. My question is, is there something that can be done? And they've actually tried multiple different tactics to try and drop me almost every month for the past five months. Um, I've had to go through multiple avenues to try and hold on to my insurance at the lower rate. Um, I can't really go into those on air. Yeah. So, Thomas, let me just ask a clarifying question. Um, Are you living in your vehicle right now? I'm living in my vehicle. You are. Okay. My question... Yeah. And my question is, is there anything that can be done for to, to protect those of us who are struggling and suffering? Because it seems like they've been very predatory on those who are struggling in the state. And second, why is the commissioner not protecting the consumer? Why are, is he protecting the insurance companies? And has anyone looked into that? Is he getting kickbacks or something like that? I don't want to make. I don't want to make. Yeah, we don't. Like we don't want to. Yeah, make make, make claims like that, Thomas. I appreciate it. Harvey Rosenfield of Consumer Watchdog. Uh, you want to respond to Thomas's concerns? A uh, couple of thoughts. Yes. First of all, um, I don't know the exact answer for people who are unhoused. I do know that what uh, Thomas is describing is happening to people who are not unhoused as well. Um, but I want to invite him to just contact me through Consumer Watchdog because I can look into that. Um, And there are multiple protections. For example, if Thomas is a good driver, he's entitled to the good driver discount. And nothing in Prop 103 of the law allows allows the insurance companies to discriminate against somebody based on the fact that they're homeless. Um, And there are other protections like that that Levy's article indicates uh, the insurance companies are violating. I do want to respond also, if if I may, to his question. 
um, Insurance Commissioner Lara has the power to protect consumers. Under Proposition 103, the voters gave them the power to stop a lot of these unfair practices because they are, in fact, illegal under the law. And he has just stopped doing so. And one of the things I'm when I, I can't tell you why that's happening. All I can tell you is he's wor he's uh, working with the insurance companies on uh, a proposed legislation that would repeal or undermine parts of Proposition 103. The, as Professor Russell said, the insurance industry in California really hates Prop 103. Thomas, uh, we wish you the best. How, how should Thomas contact you, Harvey? I don't want to give my phone number out, but I'll give my email address. It's harvey at consumerwatchdog.org. And any of your listeners, Larry, now or later, if they reach out to you, I'm, we're happy to try to help. Can't okay. say you can figure everything out, but happy to help. Harvey at consumerwatchdog.org. All right. Uh, Terry in Huntington Beach, please share with us your experience with your car insurance. Yes, me and my husband, we have perfect driving records. We've been with Mercury Insurance for 20 years. About two months ago, one of our checks bounced. And we said, okay, we'll just, you know, they said they sent us a letter saying you're discontinued. We said, okay, we'll buy some insurance. And they refused to sell us insurance again, even though we had perfect driving records. Because I heard that they're from out of state and they don't want to sell to California. And so we ended up going with AAA. But we had to wait 15 days before any insurance company in California would insurance. So we had to drive for 15 days with no car insurance. And Ooh. it made me a nervous wreck because oh, I know bad. the law says you're supposed to. Yeah. Terry, that's that. Yeah, that's a scary thing to do to drive. You know, no one wants to be in that position. Thank you uh, for sharing that that experience. So that's just um, Levy, what you were talking about very much that that thing that you were hearing from your readers of Cal Matters, where, you know, any little thing, a late payment, whatever, leads to this gap in coverage. That's correct. Um, there are many more stories like Terry's. Um, and, you know, when I contacted the Department of Insurance about some of these stories that I heard, um, they did say that they are looking into similar complaints. I tried to press them about, you know, um, how many, what kind, where, um, and they're just not ready to share that yet. But, um, you know, I I do believe that they are looking into it. They have, um, they definitely know about stories like Terry's. Um, I looked at online <laughs> plenty of stories like hers. And then, like I said in my story, you know, even once drivers are getting insurance, um, they're feeling like some of these companies don't really want to sell it to them, right? Like they're they're the companies are making them jump through hoops. Um, making them wait, um, saying things on the phone like, well, you know, we do require upfront payment. So if you can't afford that, um, you know, you, you, you could go with someone else. Uh, so again, uh, these are, these are things that are not business as usual. Um, and you know, one, one of the, the broker that I spoke with yesterday said, he has been doing this for 30 years. He has never seen it like this before mm -hmm. and that it, you know, and, and that it's too bad. 
We're talking with Levy uh, Sumagaisai, who's economic reporter for Cal Matters. Uh, her latest piece, Getting Car Insurance Gets Harder, California Drivers Face Delays, Higher Rates. Also with us, Harvey Rosenfield of Consumer Watchdog, author of Proposition 103, and David Russell, Cal State Norwich, Northridge Professor of Insurance and Finance. David in Pasadena says, I just renewed my insurance this week. It went up 40 percent. I've only driven 33,000 miles in seven years. Harvey, how does a premium go up 40 percent? That would, Wouldn't that violate Prop 103? It really depends what, what the company is. But overall, let me say this, because as you mentioned, Larry, we and Levy mentioned in her article, we very closely monitor what the insurance companies are doing with these rate app rate increases. Uh, there's there is some degree of inflation. Uh, the spare parts shortages have caused problems. Car repair costs have gone up, but nothing can really explain the vast increases that the companies are requesting. We just blocked a $500 million worth of increases for farmers insurance for auto. And it is just a, these are, these are uh, tactics that the insurance companies are using uh, in order to, and they're violating Prop 103 when they do it in order to avoid customers who, for whatever reason, they don't like or they don't want to sell to. We have James in Glendale with us. James, I understand you work for an insurer. Please share with us your perspective. I do. I, I would somewhat echo what he said in the sense that it has been tough, my understanding, to get increases in rate across the board on, different, on many lines of business through the Department of Insurance, especially through since COVID. And that is pushing many, many insurance companies to just say, we can't price it correctly. We're not going to be here. And they're moving out of California. So it's, it's making the pool of insurers that much smaller. And that pool is going to raise the rates as much as they can. But they still feel they're not, they're not making enough to do it. Their loss ratios, which they hope to be about one, are usually at now about 1.2 or 1.3, many of them. So I, there's a push-pull there. I would, I would say I, I, as a consumer myself, I understand it, but I also see the other side that with a heavily regulated industry like this, there's, there's got to be, there's got to be more. Laura, for as much as the consumer watchdog is, has dumped on him, he hasn't been in the pocket of the insurance companies. I don't, I don't see that at all. James, I appreciate your call. Let me share some more listener comments. Steve in Reno, Nevada, email. It's here in Nevada, too. My state farm premiums went way up for no reason, no points, no incidents. Using the thing on the windshield to track my mileage. I'm following all the rules. Still messed over. I used another word. Uh, it's not just L.A. folks who are getting uh, the blank. Not that that's much consolation. All right. Janet in Culver City. My son is 33. Clean driving record. Lives on the west side. His insurance is almost $3,000 a year. His car isn't even worth it. I asked the insurance agent, when does he become a mature driver and his rate decrease? When he's 50? Uh, Nancy in Glendale emailed, when I notified my insurance agent I was newly divorced, my premiums increased because I was now considered single and thus a quote, higher risk. 
Um, and Michael in Orange emailed, one thing that needs to happen is to rein in the auto liability lawyers who are out of control with their lawsuits. I want to thank all of our listeners for weighing in on this and to thank our guests as well. Harvey Rosenfield of Consumer Watchdog, David Russell, Cal State Northridge professor, and from Cal Matters Economy reporter, Levy Sumagai-Sai. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk with our TV critics about the best of streaming and network television, and we'll remember homicide life on the streets, terrific actor Andre Brower, who died earlier this week. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week tomorrow morning at 10. I'll be with you and joined by critics Wade Major and Andy Klein. We'll hear about the new musical Wonka, starring Timothy Chalamet, Zack Snyder's new movie Rebel Moon Part One, A Child of Fire. Um, the film that's getting a lot of positive critical attention from writer-director Cord Jefferson, American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright as a frustrated novelist who takes a rather extreme measure to try and, and become a published author, and uh, uh, the plot goes on from there, The Zone of Interest, which has gotten tremendous recognition at Cannes and at other festivals. Anselm, a documentary from the terrific German director Wim Vendors, The Family Plan, starring Mark Wahlberg, Freud's Last Session, starring Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Good. Anyway, got a lot of notable films on tomorrow's list for Film Week, so please join us. That's right after Austin Cross hosting the Hour of Air Talk at 9 o'clock here on LAS 89.3. With me today for our TV talk are critics Dominic Patton, senior editor at Deadline, and Marcus Jones, awards editor for TV and film at IndieWire. Marcus and Dominic, great to have you with us. Dominic, please uh, to start us off with The Crown. Part two of the season six is uh, out now and streaming on Netflix. What do you think of this series, which is has uh, come up against some uh strong critical headwinds. Well, I will say this, Larry, if you're looking for the historical truth of the royal family of Great Britain, the crown might not be the place to go. This <laughs> is the final episodes of the final season, which debuted this morning at around midnight on the streaming service. Um, it takes us up to about 2003, which is really quite the leap from where we started. 
a lot of blasts from the past. And I would say if you found some of the ghostly elements of the previous ep- uh, episodes of this last season that debuted just over a month ago, a little cloying and annoying, you might find this to be the case here. This is the royal family going into the 21st century with all the players that we know, Prince William, Prince Harry, Kate, uh, now Queen Camilla, now King Charles, and of course Elizabeth herself, who at this point is contemplating at the age of 80 her own reign and her own mortality. Lots of historical inaccuracies, lots of flights of fancy, but if you are into, as they say, the upstairs, downstairs of British, British-based drama and the, the aristocracy, Crown fans are going to love this. If you want something more, you might not be your cup of tea. I was going to say, you're you're being much kinder than many critics. The Guardian uh, saying this is so bad, it's an out-of-body experience. Critics have kind of been competing for, for how much they could trash the Crown's final well, I season. Was, I mean, Larry, I think if you recall, when I was on, we talked about the first episodes of this final season. I was pretty bad on it. I pretty yeah, you were. It. You, know, you were tough there's, but I will, but I will say this: is that famous expression "trash always takes itself out." I mean, look, what the crown has become in its last few seasons, especially with the introduction of Diana, of course, who whose death was de- dealt with in the previous episodes of this final season. You know, look, it, it, it's it's drama, it's television, it's 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 history told on a streaming service at nine o'clock in the morning. You're not going to expect it to be real. You're going to expect <laughs> yeah. it to be inner dialogues. And inner dialogues, authors like Peter Morgan can do anything they like with. We saw it with The Queen, in fact, uh, the film that, in fact, got him into this royal business. So if you're, you know, yeah. you're getting what you paid for, so to speak. Yeah, I, I love The Queen, Helen Mirren, of course, with a fantastic performance. Yeah. The Crown, uh, its final episodes are out as of right now on Netflix. Peter Morgan, the creator of this series. Uh, Jujutsu Kaisen uh, is on Netflix and Crunchyroll, the second season of the Japanese animated adventure series created by uh, Jeje Akutami. Uh, Marcus, what do you think about Jujutsu Kaisen? You did a pretty good job there. I think it's Gege. That was the only one. Oh, Gege. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just but... read the pronouncer they give me. So I... <laughs> no, I struggle myself with all of that. And I struggle to kind of explain this show. It's, um, it, at times, when I, I watched season one, it kind of came to America a while ago, probably around 2020 when people were catching up during the pandemic. But it's definitely had a resurgence now that we finally got in season two. And you're seeing just in general that audiences are kind of flocking to uh, Japanese content. The box office was topped by uh, Godzilla and uh, Miyazaki movie this weekend. Um, But the cool thing about this show, and it's just as popular in Japan, is that it has a bit of a like Harry Potter element to it where this kind of normal high school kid with kind of abnormal skills he's very strong very fast etc uh kind of ends up weirdly swallowing like a demon finger uh but it kind of opens up this world where he can now see curses and he has to go to a special school and they're kind of like exercising demons and it's a whole complex system to how curses work and how they have each uh, have battle styles and all that. So it's a great kind of action, a lot of lore to it. And so that's, I think, why people 
really flock to this show. 21 of the 23 episodes are out now. The next one uh, is out uh, next Thursday. Uh, Jujutsu Kaisen in its second season streaming on Netflix and on the Crunchyroll streaming service, which focuses on Japanese animation. Reacher is in its second season on Amazon Prime Video, created by Nick Santora. It stars Alan Richson and Sarinda Swan. Dominic, what do you think of Reacher? Reacher season one proved to be one of the biggest hits that Amazon has ever had. Now, that should be a bit of a no-brainer. It comes from the Amazon tradition of an adaptation from books, the Reacher series, which I believe is now 26 novels by Lee Charles. If you don't know the story, it's about a man named Reacher who is literally a giant of a man, an, ex, an ex-military guy, doesn't say a lot, does a lot. The books were adapted for a movie starring Tom Cruise, which got a lot, a lot of mocking, just based on Tom Cruise's height and the idea of Reacher, who is a giant, as I said, of a man. This, the first season got bogged down a little bit, giving you a lot of backstory, setting up who this person was and his sort of travels with, with uh, traveling as light as possible through the back, backyards, back streets, and even the prisons of America. Season two, season two just kicks off. It kicks off strong, reuniting Reacher with some of the team from the season one that he became friends with, but also with his military unit as one of their members is killed off. A couple of members are killed off, actually, and they pursue to find out what happened. It is nothing but full-fledged fun. The violence is intense. I'm not going to ever pretend otherwise, but it is perfect. And the lead actor is just, I mean, besides the fact his name starts with R, like like the character he plays, he is simply magnificent as this. It's talking about someone who is literally born to play a role. Reacher's just fun. And there's a little bit of romance. There's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of action. But there's a lot of heart to this series. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Lee Child books have always been so popular is because of that is this is a man of few words, but a lot of deep emotions. I say to you, watch it. It debuts tomorrow on on Prime Video. You'll have a weekend of fun going into the holidays watching it. And you'll probably end up picking up a book or two, which is exactly what Jeff Bezos wants you to do. (laughs) The second season of Reacher will have eight episodes, the first three of which premiere tomorrow. Uh, Reacher, again, created by Nick Santora, rated TVMA. Colin from Accounts is an Australian comedy starring Harriet Dyer and Patrick Brammel. Uh, The series is created by the two of them as well. Marcus, what do you think of Colin from Accounts? Yeah, so covering awards around this time is definitely overwhelming. And so I look for shows that feel like a breath of fresh air and that uh, can kind of calm me down. And I so love that Calm From Accounts. Uh, It was a hit in Australia last year, but it's kind of uh, just wrapped, kind of releasing its eight episodes on Paramount+. And it's really funny. It reminds me of kind of the... uh, rom-com shows that we were getting on fx fxx uh like you're the worst um that i really loved uh, around like say 2013 or so um and this couple that created and star in it patrick brommel and harriet dyer uh they have such great chemistry and uh the dog is very cute uh (laughs) if you you got to watch the show to understand the title but once you do, it immediately hooks you in like, oh, OK, I kind of love these uh, guys. 
Colin from Accounts, Zach the Dog co-stars with Harriet Dyer and Patrick Bramel, uh, who are married. They created uh, the series, though they play a couple of singles brought together uh, in the Australian comedy. All eight episodes are out and streaming on Paramount+. Percy Jackson and the Olympians, streaming on Disney+, Plus, the Action Adventure series. We've, of course, had film versions of it. The series created by Rick Reardon and Jonathan E. Steinberg. Dominic, what do you think of the series treatment here? Well, you know, it's, it's Percy Jackson is one of those properties that has never properly been dealt with. I guess in a way like when they did the Reacher movies with Tom Cruise. So the two movies that were done, they aged the children, the, the main characters up. They, they just messed with it. And to be honest, lovers of the books just really kind of, they just didn't respond. They're going to respond to this series. This series, actually, it's a coming of age. It's a travel log. It's a buddy movie. It's a family movie. Oh, and by the way, the main character who's raised by a hardworking single mom, turns out that Zeus is his dad. And he has to return a thunderbolt to him. So you take with what you will in modern America with that. But there are so many touching and poignant moments in this. The episodes have uh, – the first couple of episodes will drop on Disney Plus soon. But stay for the whole thing because it really, really – it tells a good story. It's, it's, it's kind of like what, what, what Marcus was saying about Colin from Accounts, which is you just get on there for the ride and you enjoy it. You've got to pay some attention. But you know what? That's what a good story is about. It's not always just broad strokes. Sometimes it's the details that matter the most. And then Percy Jackson, which, by the way, I have to say also, the special effects are great. And I, I do say that because of late, especially with people using AI more, more and more, I notice sometimes the effects look kind of lame, or you can certainly put it this way, you can see the strings. Not in this case. Watch Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Forget the movies. Pretend they never existed. Okay. This is the debut of the books that people have loved. Starring Walter Scobell, Percy Jackson, and the Olympians, rated TVPG. The first two episodes uh, debut next Wednesday. There will be a total of eight episodes in the series streaming on Disney+. Plus. When we come back, we'll talk about a Christmas film that's been played on television for nearly 50 consecutive years. The Year Without a Santa Claus. It's a Rankin-Bass animated comedy. And we'll be talking about the legacy of the great actor Andre Brower, who played two of TV's greatest cops, but those weren't the only roles. To his credit, he died at the age of 61 earlier this week. It's just been reported by the New York Times that the cause was lung cancer and he'd received the diagnosis a few months ago. We'll be back and talk about his legacy in just a minute. NPR's Here and Now comes up next on LAS 89.3. Tomorrow at 9 o'clock, Austin Cross hosting Air Talk right after Morning Edition. Great lineup of topics to discuss on the program, and then I'll join you at 10 for Film Week. Our critics will be reviewing a number of prominent films that are in the heavy conversation for Oscar consideration, including Cord Jefferson's American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright, Tracy Ellis Ross, and Issa Rae, The Zone of Interest, starring Sandra Hewler and Christian Friedel, a film that has gotten tremendous festival consideration, winner of the grand prize at the Cannes Film Festival, and uh, is the British submission 
nomination for Best International Film for the upcoming Oscars. Those and more movies to be reviewed tomorrow at 10 on Film Week. But we continue our TV talk with our critics Marcus Jones of IndieWire and Dominic Patton of Deadline. Marcus, last week we heard from listeners their very favorite uh, television Christmas specials or holiday specials generally. And Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr.'s animated uh, stop motion uh, series or films got a lot of of attention. Uh, You have won the year without a Santa Claus you want to talk about. What is it you, you particularly like about this 1974 production? Right. So I think Rankin and Bass definitely have covered the well-trodden territory of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman. That's the part that we're really familiar with. But what I like about Year About a Santa Claus is that it does feel like a really unique story in that it's this existential day where Santa Claus doesn't know if he needs to do his job anymore. And then all of a sudden we're introduced to more new characters, uh, for the Christmas season, like Heat Miser and Snow Miser that I think deserve more attention. I feel like if people are sick of uh, sort of holiday cheer, let's bring in some more uh, characters. Um, And so I really love, and the music too, that both the the Miser brothers sing, as well as the rendition of Blue Christmas. I think that it uh, doesn't just... Uh, bring joy it really makes you think about what the holidays are about Um, and so yeah I have this one on DVD and I happen to be home right now so I may watch it after this. That sounds good (laughs) yeah definitely The Year Without a Santa Claus it features the voices of of the terrific actor Shirley Booth, Mickey Rooney, Dick Sean. Uh, it's rated TV, PG, and AMC Network is going to be showing it over the weekend at various times. It's also available uh, on uh, on-demand basis, Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, Apple TV+, and Google Play, The Year Without a Christmas. Let's take this opportunity to hear the performance of Andre Brower as Detective Frank Pembleton in Homicide Life on the Street. We lost Brower earlier this week at the age of 61. She loves you, Frank. Let me get this straight. You're telling me about my wife? Is that it? Mary's gone. Libby's gone. I'm, I'm, I'm alone here in this empty house. What am I I supposed to do? Uh, 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 Spend the rest of my life waiting for my family to come back? Come on, Frank. Frank. Who is that? Who who, who exactly is this this Frank Pimbleton? I used to be so sure. I I used to be uh, your partner. Um, That was the good old days. I used to be Mary's husband, uh, Libby's father. I'm I'm, I'm still Libby's father. But uh, sitting here right now, I'm none of those things. You've got your job. Being a homicide detective, that's who you are, Frank. You take some peace in that. I I used to believe in my instincts, that as a detective I was infallible. I don't I don't I don't even believe that anymore. Marcus Jones, your thoughts about the loss of Brower and, and what his legacy, particularly in television series, has been. 
it's a real loss because it does feel like such an actor that was having such positive momentum. He's always someone that people talk about uh, wanting to see him in more things and wanting him to get more shine because really in every role, whether it's on Homicide or when he did comedy with Brooklyn Nine-Nine as Captain Raymond Holt, he's just the person where even if you don't see him, you know he's in the room. He just really captures people's attention. And I think, uh, yeah, it's a real loss. People really uh, loved this actor. You know, and he did films, but he's someone who he played so well in in a recurring character role where, you know, he could build on the character and, and really give you the depth of that character. And Dominic, you know, speak to your thoughts about Brar's career and and why he was so particularly effective in his television roles. Well, I will say, Larry, I think Andre Brar, who is a man I, I adore, had the privilege of meeting several times. He's one of the great talents to ever grace the American stage or screen. I mean, that's just undeniable. And I think he was also, when you learn a little bit about him as a person, he was also, as many of us do lament, why we didn't see him in more things and why he wasn't a bigger celebrity, et cetera, et cetera, because he's a man who decided to also put a big priority on his family and to find that balance that I guess so many of us lack in many ways. Look. Homicide taught me about what story and narrative was. You know, Tom Fontaine, David Simon, obviously behind the scenes, but it was Andre Brar, it was Frank in the box, as they said, whenever he did the interrogation scenes that just riveted. And I've never been a believer in this must-see TV and that kind of stuff, but I never missed an episode of Homicide when I was younger. I think as his career went on, we saw with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and many other things. Of course, he was in Glory with Denzel Washington, which is where he first got noticed on screen, a stage actor. I have to say, I mean, I loved him in that final season of The Good Fight, where he came on board as a partner in the law firm uh, on, on the uh, the King's created series spinoff of The Good Wife, of course. Um, he was fantastic in everything. That was who he was. And was it his presence? Was it his dedication? I know that it was this for me, which is I would watch and sometimes rewatch. And, and he was one of the first people who may, ever made me want to do that back in the day when it was on a VHS, I might add. Um, and you would listen to the way he spoke, the way he, he took a word and turned it into meaning. And that's something that many actors do and many actors don't do. Yeah. But the way Andre Brown did it, he made you feel like you knew what was under the words. As they say in music, the notes between the notes. And I think that that was his true genius. But Dominic, that, I'm so sorry. He's old, too young. Oh, too young is indeed. Dominic Patton, senior editor at Deadline. Marcus Jones, awards editor for TV and film at IndieWire. Thank you both so much for TV Talk. NBR's Here and Now is next. Air Talk back tomorrow morning at 9 with Austin Cross hosting. I'll be with you at 10 for Film Week tomorrow. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.